1: today the first degree. first
0: degree first
1: degree first degree first degree first degree the first degree you see it on the news you see it on the paper you see it on facebook these things are supposed to happen in movies not in real life
0: please please help end this nightmare for all of us Please help us to bring Hannah home. Somebody listening to me today either knows where Hannah is or knows someone who has that information.
3: We appeal to you to come forward and tell us where Hannah can be found. John has already said that this is every parent's worst nightmare. That is true. It is
2: very
4: apparent from... um Seeing Morgan's remains, that uh, you know, people think, oh well, she was killed. Well, they think, it, you know, she went to sleep. You know, she was killed in a fashion that was brutal enough to
2: break, fracture her bones. I mean, that is a lot of force. I was not able to see the soft tissue injuries because he threw her in a field to rot. And what was left for me was a skeleton. But I saw the damage that he ravaged on her skeleton. Yes, ma'am.
3: He knows this
2: community well. He's very familiar with this community. This is a homegrown predator, local boy.
3: Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and across from, nope, and next to Billy Jensen. <laughs> we're never across from we're, each other. You know. We're always next to each other. Yes. Um, and we're recording during the day for the first time in a very, very long time. How does that make you guys feel? Disoriented. I think that's why I'm so tired. Because you're used to recording at like 11 p.m. Exactly. And we're, like, at, like, a 4.30 p.m. It feels... And this is, like, my daily lull. Like, I usually need,
2: like, a little lay down at this time. Oh. A regroup, a a caffeine. Maybe you need a coffee. drinking this Diet Coke right here. Hoping it's going to perk me up.
3: Does caffeine and Diet Coke actually perk you up? Uh Uh-huh. Really? Oh, not
2: As, me. As I yawn. Well, I just started drinking it, but I,
3: I, I hope so. You need to do a little chuggy chug. Right. And then a little chuggy chug of your rosé. Yeah, and exactly. We'll, we'll be in a good place. Totally. Um, Billy, what day is it?
1: It's National Slap Your Irritating Coworker Day.
2: <laughs>
3: As he stares at me. <gasps> oh, my God. Am but... I your irritating coworker? No. Come on it's also national croc day which i'm sh- i'm unsure it has no picture so i'm unsure if that means crocodile or, croc, or the shoes. Actual croc shoes they don't call crocodiles crocs unless you're in australia but this also isn't crocs it's just national croc, croc day. day so one croc or it's a croc of shit day mm. it could be that kind of croc also do you spell that like c-r-o-c or is no, it c-r-o-c-k it's
1: I, think it's a, I think it's a
3: c-k It's also National Mole Day. Everybody should go get mapped. I just got my body mapped recently. You have moles? I have lots of moles and freckles and spots. I have none. Mm -hmm. You probably do because it's always the little guys that end up being the ones that get you. Yes.
1: You should have beauty
3: marks. Yeah. That's a mole. A beauty mark is a mole. Nope. Yeah. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, go get them checked. (laughs) everybody checked. should get their every single human being should get their body checked once a year okay yep. i've been jared you're listening to this right well, now he's the freck king my boyfriend jared who does our sound is has a million no joke freckles on his body and he don't i don't think he's ever been mapped in his entire life yep. so he'll probably
1: and i know i know, for a rude I, awakening i know somebody in phoenix too
3: what that can map him mm-hmm. oh well yep. jared there I'll, you go i'll set it up um, are there any other good days?
1: No, there's not really. This is a it's actually, you know what? This is a little bit of a retro one. National iPod Day.
3: Oh, that's Our <laughs> iPod's a, a thing?
1: You, well, they, they were at some I have point. got like
3: 5 in my digital cabinet. Yeah. You should See, I think it's past the time of actually making money selling them. No, but what should I do with them? Just donate them? them for no, you for, you the, could, for like non- for nostalgia. nostalgia and like maybe one day You'll you know, do a
1: costume and you're be Maybe one day they'll be cool iPod. to yeah. have
3: a retro one. Well, that's not, or maybe one day you can get a charger and then look back and then they'll see work. what songs were on your iPod. No, I've got like
2: 4 and I've got my iPhone. I think iPhone 3. I'm keeping them all at this point. I mean, I don't need the money. <laughs> yeah. Um
3: <laughs>
1: I don't need the Do you money. Want Billy, Billy no. seems like he
3: wanted them for the money. No, 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 no. <laughs> Do you need the money?
1: No, I never sell. Like when I, I never like trade in my phone or anything oh, like that. No. I always just keep it.
3: Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay. Well, before we start our episode, we're still doing our giveaway. Giveaway? Contest? Merch, give, March giveaway. merch giveaway. If you haven't left us a review on the Apple Podcast app, please leave us a review. Every week we're picking one or two winners to win some first degree merch. Um, leave your Instagram handle at the end of the review. That's it. And every week we'll pick a good one. And we do read through them. And the other week we had the best review probably of all time. Right. Talking about how apathetic we are in general nature.
2: Let me find it. Yeah. I think we should read it aloud. Um,
3: yeah. Use... Every, anybody who hasn't written a review yet, use this review as inspiration because this really spoke to us personally. Okay, the review says my favorite addiction, five
2: stars. First and foremost, Alexis Linkletter is my soulmate in depression. <laughs> Her lack of general happiness in life is truly refreshing and resonates very deeply. Her voice is also pure magic, which I'll have to agree with. The trio's apathetic nature, which I love, doesn't inhibit them from showing true emotion towards the victim's of these cases they review. You can feel the passion for victims' rights. Particularly from Billy. We the, know. Oh, yeah, we get it. Uh, keep it up, emo kids. And uh, her handle was at Dasmus2. D-A-S-M-U-S-2. She, and she won that shit.
3: She did. that. It was. I think that's the best review we've ever had. Yeah. It didn't even mention me by name and I still loved it that much. <laughs> well, because is she she
2: knows what I'm trying to do. She sees my vision and the difficulties in life. I used to just hide. Yeah. And now I think it's like, it's so much more common than we realize. So I appreciate that. She likes that because she's not alone. It's real shit. It's real shit. Life's hard. Life's not easy. And all the things on podcasts on Instagram, it's like Jack always says, it's like a highlight reel. And that's not the reality. The shit is hard. Yeah. Yep. Uh, everything's hard.
1: Everything. Day to day life is hard. Waking and up is uh, hard.
2: we shouldn't have to pretend that it's not. Yep.
1: Yeah. So um, before we get into it, this is a special crossover episode with yes. my other podcast, Jensen and Hulls, the Murder Squad. So we're telling the story over here. As you know, from the first degree perspective on the Murder Squad, we focused on what other unsolved cases this man that we're about to get into and learn a lot about might be involved with in the greater Virginia area.
3: Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety.
1: Because this could be you.
2: Jesse. LJ Matthew is a name you may or may not know. As a high school student, Jesse, or LJ, as we are going to be referring to him in this episode, was captain of the football team, as well as the wrestling team. And during his senior year, he won the award for having the most school spirit. Those who knew him in high school described him as always smiling, always positive, a loving teddy bear type who never once Made a girl uncomfortable. But only one year after he graduated, he became a sexual predator who steadfastly escalated in his attacks, graduating to murder, essentially. He has been convicted of killing two women, raping, and attempting to murder a third, with that attack being thwarted only because a passerby intervened. And while there has been resolution in the cases we know him to be connected to, questions, remain did this man described as a jekyll and hyde turn into a serial sexual predator overnight or had he been masking it all along did something in his childhood veer him off course in the most important question of all how many other cases could he be connected to
4: how did
2: this likable kid in high school turn into this serial sexual predator and killer As with all cases like this, we must do one thing. And that is to go back to the beginning to find out. Our first degree connection today, we're going to introduce right off the bat. Saida was good friends with LJ in high school. And she was floored to hear that this guy she knew so well had been implicated in crimes that were so, so awful.
4: So... It's weird. The The pictures that I saw of him after the arrest happened and everything are not at all what he looked like when, when he was in high school. He was a football player and a wrestler. He's like really tall, big guy. Um, But he had short hair, almost bald head. He definitely could seem intimidating, but... That was kind of the thing about him and why this seemed so crazy is, yeah, if you didn't know him at all and you saw him, he would look kind of big and scary, but he was literally the opposite of that.
2: In fact, she described LJ as being just this compassionate, helpful person.
4: He was kind of like a protector of everybody. First of all, he always had a smile on his face. I never saw him mad. I never saw him um, angry. I never saw him yell at anybody. Like, he was always smiling. He was always goofy. He was always goofing off with people. Um, and just like a really warm, welcoming personality. I know you're probably wondering how
2: he did with ladies at school.
4: This is... The- The one thing, when I look back on it and when I try to think about anything that could have been even remotely close to a marker of somebody that would do these horrible, evil things that he ended up doing, he's a good-looking guy and very friendly and super nice. And he had a ton of female friends, like all the girls got along with him. I will say to characterize somebody as constantly being in a friend zone, that was kind of how he was. He would had a lot of female friends, but he didn't have girlfriends. My perspective on that, he kind of did that to himself, calling people his friends and he was always like giving everybody hugs. So
2: despite the fact that LJ was often friend zoned or he friend zoned himself, however you wanna spin it. We do know that he had crushes on girls at school, and we know this because Saida was one of them.
4: He did tell me at one point our senior year that he had a crush on me, but if he hadn't have told me, I never would have even guessed it. It was that kind of thing. Like he was not outwardly flirty or trying to hit on me or anything like even remotely close to that. And it really kind of came out of nowhere when he told me that. And he just kind of he was like, you know, I got a crush on you, girl. Like, like that. He just kind of said it. And then he laughed. Like, you almost could think he was joking about it. I think that he did that on purpose. I think he was like giving himself an out. If I was like, you weirdo, you know, I, I kind of laughed too. And I was like, yeah, that's not ever going to happen or something like that.
3: So where things stand now, LJ has pled guilty and sentenced to multiple life terms for his vicious sexual assaults and murders. So a lot of the information we'll be sharing with you today was revealed in court. And we're going to be referencing Jesse Matthews as LJ from here on out, which was his nickname that was given to him as a child. LJ was born to Deborah Carr and Jesse L. Matthew Sr. in Virginia at Martha Jefferson Hospital. And according to LJ's defense attorney, the, quote, physician at Martha Jefferson Hospital who delivered him was intoxicated. And LJ and his mother claim that because of this, quote, there were complications during his birth and both he and his mother were at one point in critical condition. So all this information was provided by his defense. So it's been taken with a grain of salt. And LJ's father was touch and go in terms of being involved in his upbringing. Yet it's been said that LJ was really close and became a role model to his nephew. So this guy really is
2: just full of contradictions, at least in his
3: adolescence.
2: We got this information from the same place, which is... From his defense in court, but they claimed that LJ's dad would bring him along on his trysts with other women when he was cheating on LJ's mom, Deborah. and if this is true, it's painting a very interesting picture of the kind of example in front of him.
1: yeah, this is defense. The They're fighting for literally fighting for this guy's mm-hmm. life. They're throwing everything up against the wall it or sex. that may
2: be true, but perhaps it's exaggerated. In court, they also stated that LJ was bullied in school, that his nickname was Smell J, Brutal. And that he was taunted for being a minority in a school with little diversity. And again, if this is true, it didn't last into his high school years because our first degree has said how popular he was.
1: Right. So, yeah, it was, it's been widely reported that LJ was bullied in elementary school and in middle school, but that didn't last... Uh, in high school, he actually, you know, became pretty popular. And um, and here's our first degree connection, Saida, to elaborate on exactly who LJ was just one year before he started sexually assaulting women.
4: I, I feel like this happens a lot when people commit crimes later on in life, and they talk to people who grew up with the people, and sometimes they say oh you know I can't imagine that he ever would have done that or she ever would have done that you know they're such a friendly person and whenever I hear that I'm always like yeah right there has to be some markers or some thing but I can only speak personally I legitimately never had a bad experience with him and I never saw anybody else having bad experiences with him I mean like Legitimately, everybody that I have talked to since this, that I went to high school with has said the same thing, and it's, it's weird. I, I know there are factors that go into people's personality changing. Um, I, he did play football and wrestled. I don't know if he had one too many concussions. I can't put two and two together to see who he became.
1: So this is a big man on campus and he's stuck in the friend zone mm-hmm. and he's a hugger
3: he's a hugger and i mean i feel what she was saying about him kind of doing it to himself where well, he, he called himself the, the friend and and set himself up sort of as this yeah he's like perpetuating his trust friend zoneness. Word.
1: Well, yeah. And just knowing the story as we do know it, the idea, because she didn't just mention hugging once. She mentioned the hugging a lot yeah. during the conversation. And it's, it's going to, it's going to come out. His
2: lack of boundaries, lack of boundaries is,
1: is something
3: yeah. that persists throughout his narrative. Yeah, And I mean, it's an interesting thing to remember now, you know, a couple of years later where that it, that hugging just kept keeps coming up, coming up, coming up where that obviously it, it means something deeper than just somebody that just kind of likes to give you a little hug.
2: Yeah. I think for him, and this is just my opinion. I mean, I think it's entitlement Mm -hmm. over people's bodies. And I'm not just going to say women because this will come up later with, with men. And I, I, you know, football's a contact sport. Wrestling's a contact sport. Boundaries is not in this guy's vernacular. All right. So throughout LJ's high school years, it's been said and widely reported that LJ's mother was highly vigilant about keeping LJ out of trouble because she really wanted him to succeed. She made sure he was home by curfew, made sure he stayed out of trouble. He was on sort of a tight leash and she was kind of a a helicopter mom in a lot of ways. And when you look at him in his high school years, and you look at his accolades on paper and see what he'd been able to accomplish, it really seemed that her method had worked. And everyone believed this boy to be high achieving despite the odds, because his upbringing was less than ideal, friendly, loving. Everyone just believed this guy was going to be on the straight and narrow path to a successful future. And uh, Saida isn't the only person to feel this way. Everyone believed this guy to be on the trajectory towards greatness. I feel like
4: I have a really, really, really good judge of character in general in my life. Like, I've, I've very rarely been wrong about people. And to be that wrong about somebody, like, to this day, is hard for me. It's hard for me to admit or really understand the meaning behind it. I want to think that it was something that happened after I knew him. And what's
2: interesting is that Saida really describes LJ as being just helpful, as being sweet, being big and imposing, but generally using those things about himself for
4: good. I I remember there was um, like a fire Alarm that went off our first year at that school, and everybody was freaking out and he like grabs these two girls <laughs> um, that were like small and kind of getting trampled by everybody, and like lifted them up over his shoulders, like <laughs> took them outside and dropped them back down. you know it was like I don't know things like that he was doing all the time, he was always kind of just trying to help people and. Um, Like, he knew he was this big, strong, tough guy, so he was, like, always trying to do everything for people. Like, if they couldn't reach something, he was like, oh, I got it. Or, you know, when we were hanging banners for any school events, he was, like, the designated hanger of banners. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he just, like, was constantly trying to
1: uplift people. And it's been alleged that one of his teachers predicted that LJ would never go to college, but that wasn't the case. He was offered a full scholarship to play football at Virginia's Liberty University. And by this time, he stood at 6'2 and weighed 270 pounds. But it's when he started at Liberty that things started to change. And a catalyst for that change isn't clear, but we can speculate. And so does our first degree.
4: I have um, an issue trying to rationalize, like, was he just really friendly in high school and then something changed? Or was he always like that, it just never, uh, he never, you know, took it any further or never was in a situation where he could take it farther than that? He was really good friends with a lot of girls. and. You know, it, it would seem like at some point he he would try to take it further and make somebody uncomfortable that didn't want him to do what he was doing or something like that, you know what I mean? And and that doesn't seem to be the case.
2: Saida has a theory about this, and we should listen to her when it comes to the athletics portion because she's a professional jiu-jitsu fighter for a living. And uh, she raises some really interesting points
4: said he he was just really a big friendly personality like I think I've described him in the past like a big teddy bear and he really was I mean the two sports that he did are super aggressive sports right and football and wrestling and he was captain of both of those teams and he ended up winning state championships for wrestling He was really good at sports that he did, right? So I could almost see, like, somebody who was really deep into those sports and then didn't have that as an outlet, something coming out of them that had been repressed previously. I know that there's actually, there's a lot of people that um, can get out a lot of issues that they have in their life through doing it. Like, they can, they just go out on the mat and they get it all out training and then they're really friendly happy people the rest of the time whereas maybe they would be much more pent up and aggro if they didn't have that
1: outlet.
3: Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder, it's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries estate state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever
2: you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash degree 50 to get 50% off. So I think there are a lot of theories that you could entertain in this particular instance as to why only a year... After he left high school, where he was benign, had not offended anybody, had not assaulted anybody, had not even, to their own knowledge at the time, inappropriately touched anybody, yes. even though he may have, everybody's young, whatever. My theory is that we mentioned earlier that the mother, Deborah Carr, was hypervigilant about keeping him in line. She did not want a son who was going to veer off the course of success. And she succeeded. He got a scholarship. He was the captain of the football team. Like we said on yep. paper, he was doing great. Right. My theory is that as soon as he was out from under the thumb of supervision, he was in college, he was more uninhibited. Yeah. And that's when he started
3: flexing that sort of predator muscle.
2: I don't I don't know how else to explain it.
3: Well, and um, I was talking about this earlier, but... This is not the same thing at all, but maybe kind of mirroring like a super religious family where parents are raising you kind of in the same way where they're watching your every move and a lot of kids, you know, are very sheltered. And once they kind of escape, their parents are partying more and whatever. Completely different thing, but same sort of concept. They rebel. Yeah. As soon as
2: they, they go crazy once there's no supervision. Exactly. And I've seen a lot of friendships like this that super strict parents. And it was as soon as when the lights went off, when the parents went to bed, these kids rebelled, they snuck out, they slept with guys, um, drank the alcohol, (laughs) drank the alcohol. That's the thing. Sometimes the more supervision you have, the The more more you want to rebel. Exactly. Uh,
1: You know, and you see that a lot. I mean, how many times the people that we went to college with, and then they, you know, Everybody is at your college if it's a decent college. They all got good grades. They all did this, and then some of them just stopped going to school, and some of them had drug problems, and some, you know, that's we, we are finally. This is our graduation point, where under our parents' thumbs, no matter how good or bad our parents were or how strict they were. I think that uh, coupled with our first degrees theory about her, uh, about his, you know, um, physical activity being, you know, such a big part of his life, and having that sort of ramped down a little bit. And then the idea that he was this person, that physical boundaries were not necessarily a thing that he understood.
2: Right. And I think there is another side of that, too, where in high school, we're in our comfort zone. We've been with these kids for four years, three, depending on if middle school and high school overlap. And if some high school start at eighth grade, some start at nine, some start at 10. All I'm saying is we're very comfortable in high school. When we move on to college, it's very jarring for a lot of people. You don't have any of the same friends. You have an opportunity to reinvent yourself. And I think what we're talking about here between our first degrees theory, my theory, and all these other variables are all true. And there was some sort of culmination of all of these that made him feel comfortable to start exercising his physical ability to assault people.
1: Yeah, and and he was... And you wonder how, because we're going to see how it escalated on, um, you know, d- during his, actually on the night of one of his crimes, how, how that um, the the boundaries kept breaking down as it hit, he went on through the night, but it'll be, you know, Knowing that he wasn't doing any of this and she was in his circle of friends, knowing that he wasn't doing any of this, seemingly nobody had, you know, people talk in high school, people gossip in high school. People would have known if, if this guy was doing stuff. This wasn't you happening. Think, yeah. Think, and she
3: would have heard stories from somebody else. Like if there was something wasn't weird happening on, In high school, I'm telling you, this wasn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean there's always there always could could be an incident, you never know. Secretly, but it was not something that was outward and it wasn't
2: like he Uh, was a creepy guy guy that a reputation. Everybody loved him. Right. And you just wonder how overnight someone like that can go to someone like the monster. The true monster.
3: So as LJ begins college, his mother divorced his father in two thousand one and this was right as he was starting his college career at Liberty. And as he was settling into college and his college life and the football team, in October of 2002, he was accused of sexually assaulting a woman. The circumstances surrounding the sexual assault and his ultimate transfer to another school are not abundantly clear. As we all know, universities problematically tend to keep these things hush hush. And I don't think that it was even the, the new university had no idea. Correct. Correct. And
2: uh, we're going to get into the particulars about that later. But he did, in fact, transfer to a second university, which was the Christopher Newport University in January of 2003. And. They had no idea of the sexual assault allegations, and um, it wasn't long until more allegations followed him. Within 11 months, these two sexual assaults occurred at these two universities So, and it's just like in the first case, LJ left the football team. He left the school and no charges were filed in either case. And he was accused of two sexual assaults very similarly at two universities over the span of 11 months.
1: Yeah. And the police were involved and investigated each report, but in neither incident was a criminal case brought against him because, um... They didn't you know his his uh, victims did not want to testify against. At him. least, at least from first one. In the first one, in okay. the first yeah. one,
2: I know the the woman in the Liberty case did not want to. Uh, I'm also not sure if she was given the opportunity. That may have been just like news report rhetoric. Right. I hope she was given the option to. But we, we, absolutely, it happens all the time that people don't.
1: Yeah. All right. So so it's one thing that the that the assaults. Or, or the accusations um, aren't part of a criminal complaint. It's another thing that, that they don't show up on his record and they don't even show up on his student record or his transcripts. So when you think about all the things that can that can pop up on somebody's transcript, these didn't pop up on them. So uh, this university is thinking, okay, we've got this new football player and then we can just take him in. And then he does and he does the same, same thing. Right. And while he was in college, LJ had a relatively serious girlfriend though. He actually got a girlfriend And, um, you know, he actually confides in this girlfriend uh, about his troubled childhood, which will actually come into play later on in this episode.
3: All right. So LJ has been accused of two sexual assaults at this time, but he's still walking the streets as a free man. And in 2005, on September 24th in Fairfax, Virginia, a 26-year-old woman who has only been identified as RG in court proceedings, was walking home from a grocery store at about 8.30 PM when she was attacked as she walked up the steps to her home on rock garden drive. She was grabbed from behind and pulled to a patch of grass, right in plain view of neighbor of neighboring homes. Her head was slammed into the ground. She was hit in the face repeatedly and her attacker wrapped his hands around her neck and choked her as hard as he could. She was then raped, and as she screamed for help, her attacker spoke into her ear and said, I will kill you if you scream again. Let me do this, and I will let you go.
2: Right. And thankfully, RG kept screaming despite the threats, and I read one report that she said she could feel his breath on her neck as he was threatening her, and it just gave me this very visceral reaction to what she was going through, and it's just awful, So, she continues to scream, despite being threatened to be killed. And her cries were blood-curdling. And a woman who lived nearby heard R.G.'s desperate cries that night. Her husband looked out the window and saw the two of them tussling on the ground. The woman's purse was left on the sidewalk in front of a row of townhouses. And R.G. was in and out of consciousness at this point, when a car's headlights lit up the area, flashing her attacker right in the face which prompted him to get up quickly and run and when the driver saw what was happening he stopped he intervened he
3: saved her life and rg barely survived her attack a rape kit was done with local police but the dna collected from under her fingernails didn't match anybody in their database she was able to work with police to develop a composite sketch of her attacker but police had no luck locating him LJ, at least for the time being, had gotten away with raping a woman in plain sight. This attack completely devastated RG, and she was so rattled from the experience that she returned to her home country as soon as she was strong enough to do so.
2: So it's in 2007, two years after the attack on RG, that LJ starts driving for cab companies. He gets his permit to operate a taxi cab in the Charlottesville area at this time, and While I was looking up information on this case, I started going down sort of a Reddit research rabbit hole, and I found something interesting. This one user called Much Lifestyle said, I lived in Charlottesville for two years and had his number, meaning LJ's number, in my phone. He used to give out his number to passengers girls most likely to call him directly, and skirt the cab company dispatch. Didn't think much of it because I did the same with a couple of other cab drivers. This was all pre-Uber days. In college also, I definitely rode alone with him part of the way home at least one night, and this sent chills up my spine. This uh, welcomes a conversation about the tact of this particular predator because LJ's decision to become a cab driver, I think was deliberate. Yeah. And it sets him up for multiple opportunities per evening to be alone with a woman. And depending on the other variables of the evening and the characteristics of this woman, he may have been able to be, Hey, I want to victimize this one, not that one. And cab drivers, it's much different than our present day, uh, comfort with, with Uber where it's like, Hey, if I get murdered, I can't undo that, but at least my phone is tracked where I have gone and who I was with. So at least they'll catch them really quick. Um, and this wasn't happening at this time. He could just, my understanding and, and based on a bunch of things I read about him, you could turn the GPS off on your cab if you were off. Yeah. Uh, so I think selectively if he's like, Hey, I'm not charging the cab company for these hours. I can just be a cab driver, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, collect money if I want, um, offer free rides if I want in exchange for X, Y, Z. And this is important to note because it comes into play soon.
1: Yes. It's, a, it's incredibly calculated choice for him to do. And sure. I, I, it definitely wasn't an accident. Right. So fast forward to October 17th, 2009 and Metallica is on tour and they were playing a show at the John Paul Jones arena, which is located on the campus of the university of Virginia in Charlottesville. Morgan Harrington was a 20 year old Virginia tech student. And she went to the concert with her roommate, Amy Melvin, as well as Amy's sister and another friend from James Madison university, Morgan, um, picked up the group uh fr- from that university and but she wasn't going to drive that night because she was going to drink so she gave her keys to um to one of her friends and that night she was wearing a black t-shirt of the metal band pantera a black miniskirt with black tights and knee-high black boots
3: And Morgan and her friends were waiting for Metallica to come on when at around 8 10 p.m. Morgan became separated from her group of friends and according to her friend Amy Morgan left before Metallica took the stage at all and Amy wasn't exactly sure why that Morgan had left but Morgan somehow ended up outside the venue and the security guards denied her re-entry to the concert and we know this is because she didn't have a her ticket stub, right?
1: Her ticket stub was it, yeah. And it yeah. was. And this was actually a little bit of a controversy because there was a um, talk of, the, was it the policy of the the uh, the concert hall to not let people in after they've gone out into the parking lot, maybe smoked weed or something like that. And they were getting a lot of flack for that. But um, on Murder Squad, we talked to Jill, her mom, and she said, no, it was because the ticket wasn't early.
2: It would have been someone that night you know what I mean? It would have been someone. Yeah. And we can't blame a policy. We can't blame this. Businesses have to do things to protect their liabilities. We can't blame a policy.
3: I mean, he was going to pick someone. And that's also a pretty normal policy to not let people re-entry into a concert. Sure.
1: But it w- but she didn't even have a ticket. She didn't even have proof that she had been in there f- in Same. the first place. Then. Right. You know what and I mean? even so, if she did, like, that's yeah. what I'm
3: saying. Even if she did, a lot of conferences yeah. don't let you back in. Yeah. Like, even you can't leave if and if their policy
2: was crazy, he would have picked someone. Mm-hmm. Right. And nobody deserves.
1: Nope. No. Exactly. There's one person to blame in this case. Too
3: Right. Okay, so witnesses saw Morgan outside between 8.20 and 8.30 p.m. and she ended up calling her friends and say, because she couldn't get back into the venue. She, yeah. was, she was done. She's not seeing Metallica. Yes. And she ended up calling her friends and she'd said that she'd find a way to either meet back up with them afterwards or she'd find a way home. And remember, Morgan's car is still at the venue.
2: Right. And they keep saying, too, that all of her money one article I read said that she had given her money to a friend to buy merch. Yeah. Another article said she'd given her keys to a friend because right. she was, didn't have a purse. I think it's a little bit cloudy as to why she didn't have money and why she didn't have her keys because her car was there. Yeah. So there's a lot of confusion well, about also, why her car's there and right. why she's struggling to get a ride. So we just want to kind of address that.
3: And obviously she wasn't meaning to go, I'm assuming she wasn't meaning to go outside of the venue. She probably thought she was doing something, ended up outside and then was
1: fucked. She
2: meant to be able to get back in.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just want some fresh air too.
2: Totally, totally.
1: So in the hour that followed Morgan's exit from the arena, she was spotted at various locations. She was spotted on the university hall side of the arena and she was seen carrying her purse and walking through the parking lot. She wasn't spotted with any other person in particular, but there were other people around. So she's not just walking around by herself. She was seen in a few different parking areas and then on the Copley Road Bridge near the neighboring railroad tracks where some witnesses reported that she was hitchhiking.
3: Meanwhile, LJ was driving, working as a cab driver on this night in the area. And as we know, Morgan was trying to figure out how to get a ride out of the venue. And
2: everyone who knew Morgan said that she would never abandon her friends without contacting them or without explanation. And she never resurfaced that night.
1: And at 7 a.m. the next morning, a UVA lacrosse player found a purse along the fence of the Lanigan track lot. And inside the purse was Morgan's student ID, driver's license, a small flask, and a debit card. And Morgan's parents reported her missing that morning.
2: As soon as they heard that.
1: The following day, law enforcement found Morgan's cell phone without the battery, which is missing. What does that mean to
2: you? Without the battery? So they found her cell phone, but no battery. Do you think that's happenstance? Like a phone was tousled out of a window and the Mm. battery fell off? Or do you think that's that's intentional?
1: Possibly, you know. I
2: mean, intentional to not... Do they have location services back 2009? then? 2009, I'd say so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, they definitely I don't did, think yeah. the
2: way they do now, not as much as, like, Google. We, it's not like find my you know, friend. We, we agree thing, to yeah. all these things without knowing yeah, it. Yeah, Google knows exactly us. everywhere we are. Exactly. You, don't, you don't even
1: have to worry about the pinging of the phone. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: But, I mean, I think in 2009,
3: it's possible they had some mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. I mean, and even if.
1: Oh, it was definitely phone pings well, you regardless, Well,
3: sure. regardless of what it was, maybe the person that took her wanted to yeah. take it out just in case. Possibly. Absolutely.
1: And her phone, so the cover of her phone was uh, in the University Hall West parking lot. And that's interesting because that parking lot is an area for taxi drivers to wait for passengers outside um, during the concerts and events. So they would all go, you know, remember this before Uber and Lyft, they would all go hang out at this this place. Probably if the concert was going to get out at 1030, they'd show up at 10, wait. And then they would, you know, have their fares right there. So there were dozens of cab drivers working in the area on the night of Morgan's disappearance. Remember, it was a Metallica concert. And they were interviewed, but LJ was not one of them. So as the days ticked by, law enforcement agreed with Morgan's family and agreed with their fears that foul play was to blame for Morgan's disappearance.
2: And a massive, massive search went underway, and law enforcement completed a search of the arena in its close vicinity, in part to make sure that Morgan had not become ill, injured, incapacitated, exposed to the elements of the cold Charlottesville weather of this time of year. And the police checked for signs of a struggle in the parking lot where her purse had been discovered. And they couldn't find anything it seemed just very typical like a a taxi line you find the normal kind of evidence of that like people dropping things whatever but nothing stood out as having being related to Morgan's case now Metallica the band which was the concert that Morgan was attending that night even posted on their website under the subject one of our fans is missing and police speaking to the news confirmed that her case had become a criminal investigation in nature and that a reward of at least fifty thousand dollars would be
3: forthcoming but i do think it's nice that metallica at least was they also metallica also like added fifty thousand dollars to the reward as well and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST.
0: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last.
3: The reality of Morgan's likely fate started to sink in when, less than a month after her disappearance on November 11th, Charlottesville police responded to a call about an ominous discovery that was made on 15th Street and Grady Avenue. It was a black Pantera t-shirt, it was bloody, and the shirt matched the one that Morgan had last been seen wearing. And the area where it was found, it was in front of a popular student apartment complex. Students walked past it every single day, and it would have been spotted if it had been there all along. But LJ planted it a month after Morgan went missing, and he actually washed the t-shirt and put it on display. It's fucking disgusting. Luckily, there was still DNA from Morgan and hair from her dog that was able to be pulled from the t-shirt and tested.
2: This is a, I think, I think we should have a little discussion about it because he is a pretty elusive as a predator, other than the fact that we know he's a sexual predator. we know, he sexually assaults people. He rapes them. He kills them. This is actually glimpse into his pathology.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, And to put this, he washed it. He took it home. Weird. Took it home. He washed it and he. Put it on display. So it's almost like you have to think in his brain. In his brain, he thinks he washed all the evidence off. Exactly. Well, he had the audacity. Instead of hiding his evidence, which he should have done, which a smart criminal would have done, it turned him on this taunting aspect. Did something for him. And
1: it's really interesting, too, because before he had all the earmarks of somebody that just wanted to be in the shadows. This is what he was doing. He was, he went out and got a, um, you know, he sexually assaulted, um, uh, two women. Uh, then he, he would leave the school, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he got a job as a cab driver to kind of go under the radar. Yeah, this I mean, is the I first understand. time that we're really seeing him, um, enjoying a different part of this uh, activity. If mm-hmm. this was his first murder, because uh, why does he wait a month? He's probably enjoying all of the attention that's happening. Oh, look at, look at what I did. Attention of, the like, media attention of like, and honestly, yes.
3: maybe it like took a little bit of a lull. And yes. that's when he wanted to put it out there to get it back and get that's people exact, talking about it. That's exactly him.
1: what it is because you know yeah. what? There's only so many times that you're going to see it, um, people talking about it. You know, he's, he's, he's seeing that dying down. It's not on the front cover of the newspaper. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to control this narrative again. What can I do? Yes, I'm going to toss our t-shirt out there.
2: He's an idiot. Who wants to be a hardcore killer, and he's just fucking pathetic and and not calculated enough. And thank God for that, because who knows how many other people would be dead. So months passed after the discovery of Morgan's Pantera shirt. And then on January 26, 2010, what everyone was fearing the most was confirmed. Morgan's remains were found on a farm in Anchorage, Virginia, missing from her body were her boots, leggings, t-shirt, and a Swarovski crystal necklace that she always wore. Her underwear was also missing. And an autopsy would later reveal that the cause of death was, quote, homicidal violence of undetermined origin. All they knew, they didn't know how, but they knew that a violent struggle had occurred that had resulted in her death. She endured a spinal fracture on her upper left arm, two green stick rib fractures, and a skull incise fracture. And this goes without saying. I mean, her family, who had been waiting for news about where she could be or if she was alive, was devastated. Their lives are ruined. Yeah,
1: and a, and a green stick rib fracture is not when just a... Um, it's like when a, the bone breaks, so, it bends so much and then it breaks. Oh. So think about that.
4: Knowing how big that he is in person and knowing, like, how strong he was just, like, giving bear hugs, I can only imagine if he was actually trying to use that in a bad way against anybody, any human being.
1: But the hope was now that that there's evidence on the body that may be able to reveal who killed Morgan. The evidence was processed and they waited. And they waited and they waited, and it wasn't until July of 2010 that there was some movement on the case,
2: which is a few months later. Yeah,
1: it's about uh, nine months later after the body was found, or, or six months later. Excuse me. So there was a there was a hit on the DNA recovered from Morgan's body, but the hit didn't reveal the name of a suspect, but actually connected Morgan's case to RG's rape.
2: And RG is from earlier in this episode. In 2005, four years earlier, the rape she barely got out of that alive. Yes. Yeah.
1: And that was the one that LJ committed in 2005, but no one knew it was him at the time. So we still don't know the name of the attacker. We but, just
2: know a DNA profile.
1: And remember, we also, that uh, they had some sketches and things. So there is just, there's something that connects these two cases. Now they have another, another place to go. So they had the DNA profile, but they didn't know the identity of the suspect. And because LJ had no criminal record at this time, his DNA had no reason to be in any database.
3: However, LJ had been seen. RG and witnesses in both Morgan and RG's cases helped in developing a composite sketch. Friends of LJ's would later say that they joked around with him saying that he looked like the person in the sketch, which has to be the craziest thing looking back. Right. So... Now all the police could do was sit and wait for their perpetrator to slip up because they obviously do not have LJ connected to this DNA. And they hoped that it would be before he had the chance to hurt anybody else. But as we all know, that was not the case.
1: Here's what we know about what LJ was doing between 2009, which was uh, the attack and murder on Morgan, and 2014. In 2010, LJ's license to drive a cab expired. Also, if this was his first murder, he used the cab, and he's going to have he's going to have to switch it up now. So he's not going to use the cab anymore. Yeah. So in August of 2012, he was hired at UVA as a patient technician in the medical center operating room, and he's since been uh, he's been suspended without pay.
2: This is something I actually really wanted to talk about. So he was working as an orderly, which is basically moving patients around the most vulnerable kind of patients there are people who are in a vegetative state or paralyzed and i just think between him being a taxi driver and him being an orderly they're the two most kind of uh jobs that you exert the most power yeah Over the people... That you're caring for. Yes, orderlies especially. I mean, we're dealing with people on hospice or we're dealing with people who are...
1: Who are are potentially incapacitated. Incapacitated, they just got out of surgery and they're wheeling them from surgery while they're still um, under anesthesia. We
2: also know that there's a ton of abuse that goes on under these circumstances. If you've seen Kill Bill, I mean, it's a great example. He didn't do this for no reason. He
3: consciously got that job. Yes, yes. Yes. And I,
2: you know, he might've been working with people who have loss of uh, communication. They're mute. They, they can't talk. Mm-hmm. We may never know what kind of damage he caused there, yeah. but I'm sure it was something.
1: So in August of 2013, he started working as a part-time volunteer with the football team at the Covenant School in Charlottesville. Okay,
2: Chil- children now. Yeah, great. Perfect. On September 12th, 2014, two people were getting ready for a fun night out with friends. Those two people were 18-year-old Hannah Graham, and the now 32-year-old, LJ. This, of course, is the night that Hannah went missing. What we can glean from LJ's behavior in the hours leading up to the disappearance of Hannah paints a clear picture of the disturbing lack of respect for physical boundaries of those people around him, men, women, you name it, he didn't respect it, and perhaps even
3: a lack of understanding that those boundaries exist at all. And Hannah was a sophomore, British-American student studying at the University of Virginia. And she started her night around 7 p.m. She met up with some friends and some of her ski team members. They started drinking and getting ready for their evening.
1: LJ started his night at the Lazy Parrot, which is a Charlottesville bar and restaurant. And there he approached a woman sitting by herself at the bar. He came on to her and she rebuffed him. She said, I have a boyfriend. But he didn't care. He said, what's your phone number? He told her that she had great lips. He grabbed her hands. And the woman gets so uncomfortable that she actually sits on her hands to stop him from doing this.
3: This happens too much in life. Like, this is too familiar to me. Oh yeah, of guys just coming on to you at bars and you're like, so obviously putting them off and they won't stop. But meanwhile, Hannah and her friends, they finished getting ready to go to this place called Fig and it was a restaurant near the university. Fig was hosting a ski team function that Hannah and her other teammates were going to that night. She arrived, she mingled, and then she got bored and wanted to move on. So she and her friends left Fig at around 11 p.m. to go to a party in Charlottesville. Right. And that's, it's
2: at 1118 that LJ was on his way to the downtown mall in Charlottesville to a uh, bar hop. And these two places where Hannah is mingling with her friends and partying is not far from where LJ is bar hopping.
1: Yeah. And when we say mall, it's not a shopping mall. It's like an it's outdoor strip. Like it's a strip. strip yeah, yeah.
2: A strip. Sure. So, at this point, he's at a bar called Rapture. There he buys multiple rum cocktails. And he's getting his night started.
1: And at this point, Hannah is at the house party, but she doesn't want to stay long. And she leaves that one with a friend to head to another different apartment party nearby. And as you do when you're having a fun night out, she keeps drinking. and She's getting a little tipsy.
3: There's nothing wrong with this. No. no, no. we Everybody doesn't. Right. At 11.30, LJ hits the blue light grill. He buys two drinks in two separate transactions at 11.39 and 11.57. Then seemingly out of nowhere, he grabs a man who is also at the bar. He holds him down in a wrestling hold so forcefully that he pulled the man's hamstring, leaving this man limping for days.
2: Right. And once he was done wrestling with this guy, he turns his attention to two beautiful young women. And without warning, he picks them up without their consent and throws them over his shoulders. Then he begins to dance side to side with the women up on his shoulders while they're trying to convince him to let them down.
1: Okay, so LJ has these women, who he doesn't know, up on his shoulders against their consent. And he finally puts them down, but he continues to make unwanted contact with them. And he, t- he starts talking to them with his face uncomfortably close to each of theirs. He touches their backs, their hair, their legs, and touches their faces until one of them finally just yells, cut it out.
3: And so now it's midnight. Hannah's intoxicated and wants to go home, and she didn't feel well and was tired and sleepy. One of Hannah's friends at the party walks her outside and she turns on she turns down the offer for the friend to walk her home and she just ended up leaving on her own and this was the last time that Hannah was seen alive by any of her friends. So now it's 12:10 and LJ moves on to a bar called Tempo.
2: And we will return to this bar so remember the name of this bar. Inside the bar at 1218, he buys three house bourbons. He then runs into the same women he saw at the previous bar, the women he had hoisted up onto his shoulders, the same ones he'd made uncomfortable. He commences in harassing and touching these women inappropriately again. One of the women described what happened next. She took off one of her boots because her feet were hurting and LJ quickly approached, grabbed her bare leg, ripped off her sock and began touching her feet. He said, a woman who takes care of her feet takes care of everything else. She protested, she slapped his hands away, and she said that he looked at her in a crazy way when she demanded that he stop touching her.
1: So about a half hour later at 1245, Hannah is spotted walking past McCrady's Pub, which is at the intersection of Grady and Preston Avenues. And the bouncer that was working the door at the pub noticed her walking by once, and then she turned around and passed by him again. And he observed that she was impaired and asked Hannah if she was okay or needed help. But Hannah replied that she was okay and she didn't need help. And then she left walking east on Preston Avenue.
3: LJ's next move was a return to the rapture. There he grabbed an ass of an acquaintance without asking twice he was confronted by another person and warned to stop and he closed his tab at 103 in the morning
2: i think this is interesting because these are people he knows so he w- he grabbed an ass of a woman he knows and a friend of theirs called him out and was like dude stop what are you doing what are you doing which is interesting because it's he's not obviously
3: closeted in his behavior, and he's not completely. only doing it in in places where he thinks that nobody know nobody he knows is watching, yeah.
2: right? And it, it reminds it's reminiscent of what happened in high school—the hugging, that this, like the the hyper touching. The I, we're just all friends, the it's pushing all fine. Of boundaries. Yeah. yeah, if it's getting to the point where mutual friends are confronting you about making people uncomfortable, he may have taken this very personally, and maybe he's embarrassed. Maybe he his ego was hurt. Maybe
3: he yeah. was like. Oh shit, I can't get girls. This may have cranked him up. I don't know. He's obviously going around that night touching a bunch no, of girls, hoping for something to happen and it's not happening for him. Right. Yeah.
1: He's he's testing the waters, rolling the dice, salting all of these women. He's
2: looking for a catalyst. And he's
1: and, he, and he's and he's ramping up, too.
2: So, meanwhile, Hannah had been exchanging text messages with all of her friends, and she was well liked. She had many people who were actually concerned about where she was this night. And As the night progressed, these texts became increasingly difficult for her friends to understand and decipher, suggesting mounting impairment. And remember, she's 18 years old. Who knows what her experience with alcohol is, but I know at 18, I was making, I was over drinking for sure. Oh my God, yeah. Yes. So after she left to go home after midnight, she continued to text her friends. And in the last text she sent... To her friends. She told them that she was lost. Then she scratched that and said that she was on her way to the mall.
1: Then at 1255, Hannah is walking towards the mall and a gas station on her route captured her on surveillance footage at 1255 AM. So at this point, she has not gone radio silent via text. But at one o'clock, the last text she ever sends was to a friend and it reads... I got stuck down, though, which probably might have meant downtown.
3: Downtown.
1: Yeah.
2: But who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So at 1.05 a.m., LJ is walking westbound on the mall. And none of this matters yet until he crosses paths with Hannah. So she made her rights. And at this point... It's not clear as to whether or not she could even walk a straight line because she seemed pretty intoxicated.
1: So, minutes later, due to a cosmic shuffling of the deck, Hannah and LJ collide. And here's how it unfolds When their paths cross, LJ walks past the obviously impaired and unsteady Hannah. But then you see him change direction and begins walking east behind her and it's chilling he then runs up to hannah from behind and puts his arm around her and meanwhile there are two women watching them and one of them yell you don't even know her and he yells back at, at them hush
3: now it's 1 a.m and the two women follow lj and a shaky hannah into tempo and this is one of the bars that lj had been in earlier that night The four of them sit down at the bar when they arrived. LJ ordered two drinks. One was for him and one was for Hannah. One of the two women asked LJ to buy her a drink and he says no. So the two women decide to leave. And as they did, one commented to the other, he's going to fuck her up.
2: I I hate to
3: interrupt, but this is so
2: upsetting. It's bad. And you know what, you you have to know that this all happened in hindsight, like after this arrest happened or after we knew who it was. And this woman had to admit, like, I said that he's going to fuck her up. She and probably I, was like, I knew it. And she probably feels awful, but you never really think that's going to happen.
3: It's like, you know, a guy's being super aggressive. You might think they ha- well, they'll have they have sex. Well, it's like at the very, at the, at the most, when you just see this happening in your own world in your own life right. it's like you're just like oh another creepy guy and you don't really think of the consequences of something that's going to happen yeah. like you don't think he's going to fucking kill the girl you know
1: and, and i think that's changed though particularly with the rise of true crime and true crime podcasts yeah. and you know with noticing signs karen yeah. and georgia doing the fuck politeness thing it's like if something is wrong and you see something that's off and this girl is too inebriated you say something and yeah. you say something to the you know you. and that's the thing is and the bars have to be responsible too because the bars have to say You you're you're out of here, she stays.
2: Well, this did end up happening because Tempo was a twenty one and older bar and Hannah was Mm eighteen. So once this all came to light, I mean, they were they had the access to this information freely because they were breaking the law. Yeah. Because they weren't vigilant enough about their IDs. IDs.
1: Yeah, but still, though, if you you know, so if you're in that situation and you see um, a woman who is completely inebriated, she's with somebody that she obviously doesn't know. He's being handsy with her, you know, he is because he's been doing that and he's been assaulting these women throughout the night. So he's definitely touching her. Yeah, um, we know he's touching her. It's on video. Um, when he's at the bar, he's probably touching her more. You know, to but go two
2: up. women are watching,
1: and two women are watching. The women, have, what you do is what should happen is. Talk to the bartender, the, the, they should throw him out, Yeah. keep her and then get her home safe. And people are noticing this stuff more and more, but it's just, um, you don't want to, you know, you, you just have to, you know, do the right thing. We're all in this together. And if you see somebody that's doing this, you got to say something.
3: Well, and also it's just even not, like us doing this podcast and everybody else doing podcasts like this or talking about it, at least we're getting it out there yeah. so other people know that this isn't just a normal thing to see. So if you see it, you should say something. Absolutely.
1: So Hannah and LJ leave the bar. They're walking arm in arm. Surveillance footage shows them walking by Red Pump Kitchen at 1:18 a.m. And at one point, they stop and, and pause for about 10 seconds. And it's unclear what's happening. But based on his behavior with the all the women at the previous bars, Very well might be that he was doing something inappropriate, unwanted touching of some kind.
2: Right. So what we're seeing here is they see just half of what's happening in the surveillance, but there's like a scuffle, but they can't confirm. But based on what we know, their assumption is the police is that something happened in this moment that put her off. Yeah. She's like, Mm -hmm. Oh shit, you're trying to have Mm -hmm. sex with me. You're, Mm -hmm. you're, you're getting too handsy. Something that, really upset her, but they couldn't get the full picture based on the surveillance.
1: So it's at this point that Hannah breaks away from him and starts walking ahead of him.
3: A final interaction is witnessed between LJ and Hannah when they're standing in front of his orange 1998 Chrysler Sebring. Hannah's standing at the passenger rear tire and she's seen saying, I'm not getting into that car with you. What is it stolen? And witnesses say that she sounded elevated, rapid, and frightened. And less than two minutes later, after a witness drove by the spot where he saw the two of them in this exchange, drove by it again and didn't see them. And from what law enforcement can gather, this is the last time that Hannah was ever seen alive.
2: Right. And then the next morning, Hannah's friends reported her missing
1: yeah and just like with Morgan's case, Hannah's disappearance generates a ton of media coverage, a ton of concern, and also a ton of resources state and federal agencies agencies come in to uh you know combine all their efforts to search for her.
4: I remember hearing about um Hannah Graham's disappearance because I think somebody had posted it on Facebook. And Charlottesville, like I said, is not a big city, so I'm sure it was somebody I knew, and I was like, wait, what's going on? This girl is missing from the college that I went to high school in, you know, and I looked at it, and then I was like, oh, man, that's so sad, and, you know, at that point, they hadn't found her. They didn't know what had happened or anything. It just was her disappearance. And um, so I was following it closely and I had, you know, people that were sending updates about what was going on.
3: So all the surveillance footage that we've referenced so far was originally discovered by police. And as they poured over it, they were able to make out the face of their suspect, Jesse L.J. Matthew. Witnesses who had also seen some of his antics throughout the night also came forward and told them what they had seen. And with this information, the police were able to go to the bars that he had gone to and get his name through all of his credit card transactions for all the drinks that he was purchasing.
2: Right. And five days after Hannah disappeared, police identified LJ as their suspect. They discovered that he had an apartment that he shared with roommates. And there was a really interesting thing that I read that a police officer said, like, listen, if he has roommates, we know she's dead because the only other alternative is that she's being held. But because there were people sharing his home, Mm -hmm. he knew that was off the table and suddenly it was just one of these things where they just their heart sank. The search of his apartment revealed a cell phone with a missing SIM card and took a number of things from this apartment to be tested. They also took his car for forensic testing and a pair of stained shorts were found on the floor of his room. And there was also a stain on the left front thigh area of these shorts. Forensic examiners eventually determined that that stain contained both LJ's sperm and Hannah's DNA. And they also found that her DNA in his car on the passenger side door. But at this point in the story, we know this now, but they didn't know this then. DNA testing takes time. And they just kind of had to take the test swabs and wait to see what would happen and they couldn't really indict him on these charges until they knew for sure
1: yeah so he's walking free at the moment and he's not being cooperative at all he wouldn't even give them his cell phone to the police when they asked his cell phone number he was like no i'm not giving you my cell phone number and but then he actually has the gumption to ask if he can get his passport out of his car before they towed it and they said no uh, meanwhile, his family is, is pleading with him to do the right thing, and uh, his aunt later told Charlottesville Detective that she and her family were were trying to get everything they could do, possibly do at to urge him to tell the truth
3: lj's family planned to have a family meeting which included lj so that they could convince him to do the right thing and talk through the whole situation with him but the morning the family was set to meet lj's mom deborah woke up and found that her son was gone and given what we know about him already there's no surprise that he probably did whatever he could to make this as difficult and painful for everybody connected to the case including his own family After his apartment was searched, LJ went to the DMV, got a new license, and then he withdrew all of his cash from the bank except for $30.
2: Right, and after he did that, he fled. And license plate readers in Louisiana captured a Nissan Sentra belonging to LJ's sister crossing state lines. And the next day, LJ's father got a call from his son in Louisiana from another person's phone. And while he was on the lam... He was officially indicted with abduction and with intent to defile charges relating to Hannah's disappearance. And on the following day, LJ was spotted and arrested in Galveston, Texas.
1: The police pick him up down in Texas, and LJ is in custody, but they still need to find Hannah's remains. Bloodhound searches were conducted, and they tracked Hannah's scent to a large mulch pile. In an old industrial part of Charlottesville, and this is really eerie. And there's not many things that actually get to me, but this really got to me. Mm-hmm. The dog's handler, um, uh, you know, who knows the dog better than anybody else, believed that the scent that that had been found at that mulch site was so strong that it had to be very well, very well, might have been the result of fear or adrenaline. And the thought was that this was where. Hannah was running for her life.
3: The canine also found Hannah scent at five spots in LJ's apartment complex. LJ's family urged him to disclose where her body was. His mother said to him, this is someone's child. But LJ remained callously tight-lipped.
1: The police believe that Hannah was either in Charlottesville or one of the surrounding nine counties. And the police publicly urged property and farm owners to comb through all of their land. Uh, just to see what they could find. So on October 18th, 2014, human remains were found at abandoned property off Old Lynchburg Road in North Garden, Virginia. But due to how they were decomposed, the remains couldn't yet be positively ID'd as Hannah's. And they were sent to the ME's office. And six days later, they were identified as being Hannah's remains. And that same day, her parents visited the property and the spot where she had been found.
3: Hannah's autopsy revealed that her left nasal bone had a piece that was broken away. The medical examiner said that her most likely cause of death was strangulation or suffocation due to homicidal violence or undetermined ideology. And that both of her nasal fractures likely occurred at the time of death. Friends of LJ's who were later questioned told police that LJ had a swollen jaw in the days after Hannah was murdered, likely from a struggle from Hannah defending herself. Friends also described him as a quote-unquote prowler. And they said, which is not to say he was looking for a victim, but looking for a girl who was already compromised a little bit, maybe to improve his
1: chances. And after LJ was arrested, law enforcement were able to get uh, DNA. So they swabbed his cheek for dna and they ran it into the system and then that's when the shocking truth was revealed he was the one responsible not only for hannah's disappearance and murder but also morgan's 2009 murder and the 2005 sexual assault of rg in fairfax virginia
4: when they named him as a suspect I remember just being shocked, like sitting there and reading it. And I I read it like four times and we all just kind of were in shock. We didn't know what was going on and we were like, that can't be true. They must have the wrong guy. It must be a misunderstanding, you know, all that sort of thing. I have become much more suspicious of people around me since this case happened. I'm pretty good at judging people's character after knowing them for just a short while, and to have misjudged somebody's character that strongly. um, Like, I'm gonna be honest, there were people in high school that if they had become serial killers, I would not be shocked. I'd be like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, to be so wrong about somebody and then to find out, like, these horrible, horrible things that he did to girls that very easily could have been me, it's terrifying.
3: LJ was a serial offender and a serial killer, and now the pieces are coming together. Since his capture, he's been referred to in the media as a modern day Jekyll and Hyde. And in addition to the DNA, LJ's cell records indicated these long lapses of activity around the time of both of these murders. Police were able to access phone records of the taxicab company that he drove for in 2009 during the time of Morgan's abduction. They connected with several of the witnesses who rode in LJ's cab. And one of the witnesses remembered seeing Morgan standing near where she exited the cab and she actually spoke to Morgan about her T-shirt.
2: Right. So this puts Morgan with LJ. And another witness who took a ride with LJ the night before Morgan was murdered. Said LJ asked her, this is the night before Morgan was murdered, asked her for oral sex when LJ realized that this woman didn't have enough money for cab fare. This girl was so scared and freaked out So she basically gave him what she had and hopped out of the car.
1: Now, and you just got to get the hell out of there too, because you feel like, you feel like you're, you're trapped. You're in somebody else. You're literally in somebody else's car. And, you know, and we've been seeing this with, with the Ubers or people getting into cars that aren't even Ubers, but they think they're Ubers. Right. And, um, you know, when that's, when that happens, you just get the hell out of there. Of course. So deconstructing how this happened. So in college, LJ was implicated in sexual assault accusations at both of the colleges that he went to. Uh, Charges were not filed in either cases. That's why he was admitted to that second college, because they didn't know what happened at Liberty University.
2: Okay. And so this is probably the most important thing we're going to share in this episode. So pay attention, because I had no idea this, this whole thing existed. So LJ could have been stopped before he'd even started murdering women. But there is a serious lack of communication between universities when those who commit sexual assaults transfer to secondary universities after they're booted from universities for committing sexual assaults. So Insane. I'll make it more clear and simple. So I found an article on a legal news site called jurist.com, written by Sarah Silverheart. And she explained it in a very concise and amazing way. And what she said is the Jesse Matthew LJ story epitomizes the campus serial rapist who moves from campus to campus, raping and sexually assaulting women without ever getting caught. As horrific as his record is, Matthew's commission of numerous rapes on or about college campuses is not at all exceptional. Serial sexual predators operating on university campuses is nothing new. And essentially people like LJ are protected under what's called Title IX, which is the Education Amendments Act of 1972. A federal law that states, no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And this isn't just based on sex. This was also a law that included race, sexual orientation, and any basically other discriminatory factor or characteristic that you can think of. And what they didn't include back in 1972 was it should probably exclude people who commit dangerous criminal offenses on the university campuses. But that stipulation was not included in Title IX. So now people hide behind Title IX. People like LJ, who commit rapes on campuses, can keep their essentially, you know, sexual offender status secret if it happened on a college campus and criminal charges weren't filed, where in this case they weren't. Back to my opinion now. This is an act that was implemented to protect people from discrimination. And I think the heart of this bill was in the right place. But I feel that sex offenders such as LJ have managed to bastardize this very good law by using it as a loophole to continue to rape people and transfer schools without having to disclose any of their records. If LJ had been stopped, if he had been forced to disclose that he was under investigation at Liberty University for rape to his second school, he probably wouldn't have been admitted. No. And there is something, though, none of this goes on their transcripts. And there is no system like there is in state police, federal police, that that mandates that these disclosures occur on transcripts. So that's, that's where this all happened. If he had been called out after his first sexual assault in Liberty in 2001, maybe no one would have died.
1: It's really sad. It protects criminals in the same way that it protects what the what it meant to do, uh, which was protecting minorities and protecting um, uh, women for getting into these universities.
2: This law hasn't been updated. So what was originally meant to protect civil liberties has now been exploited to protect
3: those with a criminal record because there's a weird loophole. well and the thing is this is obviously a conversation that is happening now all over the country and this is probably such a massive reason why because i mean i didn't know about this until today of course so it's like why the fuck does this keep happening and why can these kids keep transferring around and doing the same thing over and over again it's so sad had he
2: been stopped here hannah would be alive and morgan would be alive that's all.
1: Yeah, but very well. Somebody else might have been dead. Or, I mean, I mean, if it, or well,
2: he would have been prosecuted. Yeah, if
1: he would have given, but yes, he would have been prosecuted and for not, that. Not, he yeah. wouldn't
2: have killed anyone. Who knows? But it's very disturbing.
1: So LJ faced charges in RG's 2005 rape case first, and he took an Alfred plea after first pleading not guilty, and then he changed his plea mid-trial. He was facing charges of attempted capital murder, sexual penetration with an object, and abduction with the intent to defile. And RG actually had to fly all the way back from Asia to testify, and her testimony along with the DNA evidence convinced nearly all watching the trial that he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of this attempted murder and this rape.
3: LJ pleaded guilty to both Hannah Graham and Morgan Harrington's murder to take the death penalty off of the table. This saved the families from so much pain of a trial, and he also surrendered his right to an appeal and will never be eligible parole. So basically, he's going to die in jail. So prior to his sentencing, according to court documents, his girlfriend from college sent a letter to the judge, writing that he told her, quote, that he was sexually abused by at least three different individuals through his elementary school years. One individual in particular raped him on several occasions and forced LJ to keep it a secret. And she said that I have no doubt that this repeated sexual trauma during his developmental years played a key role in the allegations against him. She said that LJ was reluctant to discuss the assaults and would become despondent if it ever came up in conversation. And she said that she thought she said that he sought out therapy once or twice, but he couldn't afford the continued sessions.
2: Right. So during his sentencing, LJ's defense attorney harped on this and... The prosecution sort of, in response, balked. But He said, first of all, an anonymous letter from an ex-girlfriend, first name only, we get it at the 11th hour. How much credibility am I supposed to give that? Now, anything's possible. It's possible that it's true. But even if it were true, what difference does it make? What does being sexually assaulted when you're a child have to do with grabbing a 110 pound woman off a public street and beating the daylights out of her, killing her, raping her, have to do, in molesting her, have to do with what happened to you as a child. And that is fair. Yeah. And uh, he said, the two have nothing to do with each other. And that's the thing, it's like, I have lots of friends personally who've gone through really fucked up childhood things and ended up just as amazing people. And you know what? I agree. It's not an excuse. It's a mitigating factor. Maybe you get five years less. It doesn't get you off the hook.
1: Yeah, I don't even think it should get five years less. But I That's mean, I the- get it and I understand. And I understand why the defense would would attempt it. Right. But, um, but you know, the, the prosecution was right in, in calling him out on that. So
3: today, LJ has stage four cancer that has spread to various parts of his body. And Morgan's mom said that, quote, whatever justice is, perhaps this is the next phase of his justice. Perhaps this is his karma. I'm not happy about it, but I'm very sanguine for whatever unfolds
1: here. So the big question that I always have whenever you have a case like this uh, that has attacked multiple women is how many other attacks are out there? How much much is he responsible for? Did he really have this five-year lag in between attacks? And, you know, there are a number of women who have gone missing or were murdered in the same area where Matthew was prowling. And not necessarily that he's responsible for all of them, but he very well could, should be responsible for some of them. So those are those cases. And we focus on those cases on the murder squad, as well as interview Morgan's mother, who has since started an organization called Help Save the Next Girl, uh, which has a list of. Uh, 50 tips, safety tips, which are actually, um, you know, a lot of them seem, you know, pretty like, okay, pretty basic, but
3: common sense,
1: but they are. And, and the number one thing that they always have is, um, that they always talk about is the idea of buddying up when going out, especially when you're going out at night.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how safe we are. Sometimes we are put in situations that are out of our control. So I don't want anyone to feel obligated to be like, how do I be safer? Sociopaths are just out there. They might just live your life, do your best, um, follow your instincts. And I think one of the biggest things for people are who think they have good judgment is that we learn, especially in cases like this, that they're just wolves in sheep's clothing that are so good at hiding who they really are. And we feel so betrayed by our own misjudgments about these people.
4: I was raped when I was 15. So that was before I knew him. And I became very, very suspicious of all strangers and people that I knew after that. It was a stranger that did it. But I became very suspicious and also very, like, protective of myself. and my dad taught me how to use a knife, and you know I was like very aware and still right over my radar. You really never know like who's sitting next to you who you're having lunch with, who you know who you call your friend, you know what's really going on in their heads
3: um well, big thanks to Sayida for being our first three connection um go check out the murder squad two You guys did a two parter on this case to check out more of... Well, because
2: we have no idea how far-reaching this guy's reign of terror could be. There are a few years where he's completely unaccounted for. Many things may have not been reported I would be really surprised if you weren't connected to more crimes.
1: Yeah, and Absolutely. exactly. And just getting his face out there, um, you know, his face was out there, you know, when the when the case started. But there's more people that might be able to see him, and remember him, and have done done stuff with him. So, Absolutely. and then also there there's other cases that from that area that we that we focus on because those still need answers.
3: Of course if it wasn't him who the fuck is it it's even scarier if it wasn't him right and it still needs to be fucking solved so go check out the murder squad follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Billy Johnson at Alexis Linklater at Jack Vanek go buy some Merch, go join our Facebook group. Just search the first degree. We actually have a little merch discount available only for our Facebook uh, members. And please write us if you have a story that you want to tell. Hello at the first degree Alexis and I are checking the uh, email every day. We try. We try. We try. I think that's it. Stick around for killing time because we're on one today. This episode in particular has a lot of sort of takeaways. Yeah, yeah a lot of takeaways.
1: And our sign-off is particularly accurate tonight. So remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close.
3: But, but not, not that, that close. close. Happy. Slap your. Slap your. Happy, happy your bowl, bowl day. Go get
2: jacked, Go get mapped. Happy go get, go get your skin Check day. Eh? Health first. Jared, you have freckles. Get your freckles (laughs) checked. Today's research sources include the court documents, primarily, the Washington Post, WTVR, NBC12, Jurist.com, and as always, our first degree interview is our primary and largest
4: source.
3: All right, welcome to Killing Time. Still need to figure out a better intro. The Killing Time here we is, <laughs> is the better intro. You know what? My mom did tell me the other day. She's like, "I don't like the Killing Time." <gasps> really? She's like, "Well, she said she liked Killing Time." There you go. Well, you know,
2: you're her daughter.
3: Yeah,
1: it's mm-hmm. so so everything I do. May, is perfect.
2: I love you, but you're—it's biased that you can't see. Fine, no. Should we killing, do a poll killing, on our yeah, Facebook Yeah, Killing Time group? is cleaner. It is. But the Killing Time is more uh, severe. It's poetic. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's
3: not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. Okay, so I edit the
1: podcast. <laughs> so In fact, I'm going to take all of those. Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Um, it's going to be the the, the yeah, Killing yeah. Time. It'll be a remix. 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 Um, okay, so for this episode of Killing Time, I decided to like Google, you know, interesting questions to ask somebody to get to know them because we know each other very well but our listeners don't know us and we might have some weird um thoughts about things sure sure so i did pull up a website and the title of it was funny questions to ask that make you look charming and hilarious and i took some of those questions off of that so these are all random if you guys don't like them we can skip ahead okay because i gave billy some practice questions and he was like these suck well i'm
2: glad when i was busy you guys worked through some of the nonsense
3: yeah so we didn't have to waste as much time yeah well billy just basically said that my ideas weren't good no. <laughs> <laughs> did you Uh-oh. a little bit okay um i'm gonna start with um this one's good what part of a kid's movie completely scarred you
1: I'll I'll go first. Go. I'll go after you. Uh, Poltergeist with the uh, that is not fe- a
3: kids movie. With his the fe- tree oh. is that a kids movie? I watched it as a kid.
1: It was rated PG.
3: It was yes. Okay. okay, the part of Poltergeist that scared me is when he was looking in the mirror and his face started peeling off. Mm-hmm. Remember that part? Yes. That that was my part. But
1: I think that the tree and then the clown. Particularly, all the stuff that they did to that that poor uh, little kid. I don't.
3: Yeah. What happened with the tree? The
1: tree, like, kind of like, um, came alive, and then the clown str- tried to strangle him. And actually, while they were filming the movie, the clown was like, was like a mechanical thing, and it was strangling him so much that his face was turning blue. And they finally stopped it, and they just thought he was being a really good actor, but he really was. He was. He was oh, dying! He was, he was dying. Yeah.
3: <laughs> that would be a really weird way to die yeah. mm-hmm. while filming a scary film. Totally. Um, okay, mine is in the Lion King when Simba's dad. That's dies. what I was gonna say. Because I think that
2: that because that is answering the question properly
3: because it's supposed to be a kids' movie. <laughs>
1: oh, it's, uh... or
2: like when
3: Bambi's mom dies.
2: That was gonna be my other one. Yeah. <laughs> also, though, when Pinocchio. When they all go send the boys to the island and they're mm-hmm. all drinking beer and they light the
3: island on fire. Wait, I don't remember this part of Pinocchio. Do you? Yeah. What happened?
0: They, they send go to,
1: all
3: these boys. When they
1: go to Paradise Island. They yeah. go
3: to Paradise Island. Mm, that it sounds
1: really sketchy.
3: Yes, that's
2: right. And it's scary because they let them all have beer and they take these boats over there and the whole island ignites into flames and Pinocchio is made of wood. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> but like people can burn too sure but <laughs> ember is on a vlog there's nothing
2: as uh... pinocchio's
3: gone first mm-hmm, totally
2: <laughs> so uh yeah simba was gonna be mine and then the next one was gonna be bambi and then pinocchio's the
3: next one but pinocchio that seems like a very like is it like a Jef- jeffrey epstein island vibe yeah i per-
1: well, it's supposed to be sort of like a hedonistic yeah. type of island type of thing uh, mm. that they were going to, and it was a it was a morality tale of like if you if you're going to act like a jackass, then the kids turn it they literally turn right. into donkeys, so. Um yeah, The problem is, is, is I understand what you're saying. You were talking about kids' movies. Growing up in my generation, we were sort of like the lost Disney generation of good movies. It what was kind of Because Disney passed away. Um, and then in the 70s and 80s, before uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, you know, got into Disney and started making Lion King and Little Mermaid and all the really good stuff, there was a whole lot of really bad Disney movies. So I had to deal with Herbie the Love Bug, which didn't necessarily... <laughs> is that a car? Yeah, yeah that was the car. One uh, not, not even the Lindsay Lohan one Like the one Before that <laughs> right. uh, And um, Worse than the
3: Lindsay Lohan yeah, one Yeah
1: Like the Rescuers right. Was like th- Those are the Kind of You know Ones that we've got, we Speaking, Had
3: Speaking
2: This is actually Very relevant uh, Hocus pocus Do you remember When the witches Capture The kids And they're in Cages And the witches Are stabbing them With pitchforks mm-hmm. And they turned That other boy From the 1700s Into, into a that cat. cat Yeah That was pretty Terrifying <laughs> And this is relevant because Jacqueline and I are one of our Halloween parties and our friend Anna are going as uh, the
3: Sanderson sisters. Yes. Well, I was watching Hocus Pocus the other night and I was like, wait a second, This is perfect for my best friends and I. Why have we never thought about this costume before?
2: Because I knew who I would
3: be stuck with. (laughs) I know. Alexis is so pissed.
2: Because our friend Anna has red hair. Mm -hmm. And I knew she was like, ooh, I'll be Sarah Jessica Parker. (laughs) And I was like, this doesn't really do anything for me. Because I'm not, um, I don't look like her, is all I'll say. So I'm going to do a modern version where... Are you going to wear the wig? (laughs) No, but I'm going to wear a brown wig and... It's going to be modern. I just don't share the same physical characteristics as her, but I had a feeling that I would get that one to be.
1: I'm talking about Bette Miller's character?
2: No, no, that's going to be Anna, the brunette, who's like kind of a, a derp. <laughs>
4: She's like, <laughs> <"Ew!"> <laughs> at I like everything she does.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I just knew that would be... Be me, even though that's the farthest from me. I know, but it, you'll do a sexy, fun version of it. Yeah, totally updated version. It'll be great. But that movie was really scary, especially when they're singing that very haunting, might I say, song. Become mm. like little children, and all the children, like zombies, are walking towards them to be have their life sucked out of them.
3: Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. It is, it is weird that like when you watch movies when you're a kid and you think it's the scariest, scariest. thing ever, and then you watch the thing as an adult and you're like oh my god
1: do you know what i just remembered the, the the one of the ones that scarred me the original cartoon version of lion the witch in the wardrobe mm. when they when they shave the lion like and, and like oh yeah i don't think you i saw the, the original part? i read oh, the book yeah. I watched. and it was so like sad and the, you know it's a that's a whole christ metaphor and eventually he comes back and everything but that, i hadn't that considered part.
3: that but i believe you <laughs> I also (laughs) haven't considered. I I watched that before I was too.
0: Yeah, I I read that. I read
2: that in middle school. Like that's like the Narnia. Yeah, Yeah. franchise. Franchise. Yeah, Uh Yeah, it's good. But I didn't read too far
3: into any of those metaphors. (laughs) Of course, shave the lion. Wait, what other? What other movies? What other Disney movies were in your childhood?
1: They're just it. Just there was a lot of live action ones. Fantasia
3: was dark. Yeah, but that was a little bit before me.
1: But that was great. You know,
3: Dolly did a whole um, like a short film with. Dolly Walt Disney, who? Salvador Dolly. Salvador Dolly? Oh right, not, not Dolly. I thought
1: Barton. he said
2: Dolly. I thought he oh, meant Dolly Parton. I was like, no. wow, was it like a Western? <laughs> was it like Fifel goes West with a Dolly Parton crossover?
3: <laughs> no, Salvador Dolly did like a short film with Walt Disney he that did. never got released. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where is it? I don't. I think that they maybe they released it like after he I died think it's or around. something. It's around, yeah, yeah, but they never like. Um, like, actually released it you know, out Salvador to the public. Toward Dali is, like,
2: this weird bridge between good and evil that is so fascinating. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, Disney is good, I think a lot of people would say, and love Dolly. Black Dahlia shit, mm-hmm. all that surrealist art, that was all mm-hmm. Dolly inspired It's just this fascinating like a kind mind sees Dolly as this like beauty and other and there's minds, like, and other minds would just be like
1: yeah I, yeah. Can, I can use this. For, it's like
2: the, a Rorschach uh, test yeah, yeah. For, for, for just deviance or not.
1: yeah Absolutely. No somebody can see it and they can see the, the dripping clock so they can see like oh that's beautiful it's talking telling me about time and how it goes and somebody else can say wow this person it's is death. seeing into my soul uh-huh. and I, I'm i going to use this to, well, in my next crime. Yeah
3: or like you look at it from like a Freudian perspective and it's like of course everything goes back to sex mm-hmm. and for him mm-hmm. it's like the Loaves of bread and the melting clocks, mm-hmm. and the, it's like the yeah. and everything was yeah. Wait, what is sex? What what is the sex that
1: you've never what, had sex with a loaf of bread? Uh,
3: nope. So you know <laughs> the, the Dalí museum that I went to outside of Barcelona. On the outside <laughs> of the awful. museum, it literally had loaves of bread stuck. Like there was thousands of pieces of. He had loaves of bread in all of his artwork, which I never realized until recently. Until I went, and to what the, does it mean for him? I don't remember what it was. It was something about.
1: It's something about well, the yeast and the yeast yeah. rises.
0: No, but the
2: thing is about bread is that, I mean, bread is the body of Christ as well. So it's kind of like right. maybe flesh or... I don't remember what it was.
3: But Interesting. It, but it, yeah, I don't know. But...
2: No, Dolly is very polarizing and people do whatever they want with him. Uh, it and Lord knows what his work actually meant. I mean, each piece to him. But yeah, people run wild with that shit. I mean, people could bastardize the catcher on the rye you know people well, can bastardize it been, it, of course
1: yeah uh, uh bread wrote salvador dali in 1945 has always been one of the oldest fetish how do you say that word wow i can't even say that what fetishistic
2: fetish <laughs> fetishized? like fetish
1: yeah, it's fetishized but it's fetishistic <laughs> and obsessive subjects in my work the one which i have remained the most faithful
2: yeah, but what does it mean? Full to bread. Well, maybe he's like an American no, a, there, pie dude and wants there, to stick his dick <laughs> in the bread. No, huh? there's the, there is
1: there is that. You were right the first time before you went naughty and did that. The Eucharist is definitely involved. The body their, of Christ thing? Yeah.
3: I'm full of, you know, I don't give myself enough credit. Full of knowledge. It's <laughs> just that innate knowledge that you have. Ding, 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 ding. That and eggs. He always uh, put eggs in all of his work. Mm-hmm. What are you reading?
1: I'm just reading this thing. Yeah, eggs. He's got eggs as well. Yeah. He's so he all right. I loved
3: him. Um, all right. Do we have enough killing time? Sounds good to me.
1: 10, 10.38? 10.38 yeah. is good. All right. So.
2: Well, we killed go some, eat some
1: time. Go, <laughs> we killed some time. We ate some bread.
2: That's showbiz, baby. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. Bye. Yeah. Ta-da. Showbiz. All right.